Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Welcome one and all to episode 98 of the Howie Games, part A. 98, one step closer to the ton, but the wheels could still fall off from here. It happens. Go on, I think Surely not. That was actually the great Michael Slater, by the way, who got out reasonably frequently in the 90s, but he would be a ripping guest on the show. What a player he was. And on that topic, last week I asked you all to get in touch at MarkHoward03 on socials as to who you would like to be the 100th guest of the show. Thank you for all the suggestions. Some of you guys need to be producing this show if you can get the guests requested, starting with Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Kerry O'Keefe, a lot of love for Kerry, Nick Kyrgios, Adam Scott, Tiger Woods, Matty Johns, James Hurd, Lauren Jackson, some good news on Lauren later in the show, Viv Richards, Ash Barty, Pat Rafter, Kelly Slater, Dustin Martin, Jason Day, Jack Miller, Toby Price, David Beckham, Harry Kuehl, Dennis Lilly, Roger Federer, and my personal favourite, a chap from Queensland who said, can you please get Ronaldo on the show? I'm not sure if I'm just meant to send an email. Dear Cristiano, I've got this podcast in Australia. Would you like to come on it? But I love that you guys are aiming high. I haven't actually secured episode 100 yet, but I'm getting close. So please send in some more suggestions. Ronaldo, he'd be a good guest. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Anyway, let's not put the cart before the horse. Episode 98 features a man who has not been afraid to have a crack over his career, Kevin Musket. Oh, Kevin Musket, a Melbourne boy. Focused. Concentrating. This episode was recorded with Kev in Belgium, where he now lives and works. Kev was in Belgium. Darcy, our producer extraordinaire, was on the rooftop of Podcast One in South Melbourne. I was in Barwon Heads. Now, Kev, sorting out Zoom with the help of Darcy and me, one of the, one of the funniest moments I have ever experienced on this podcast. Come on, mate. You're meant to be coaching a European football team. You've got to get your phone sorted out. <laughs> Are you f***ing recording this, boys? <laughs> I am, Kev. Don't oh, worry. Okay. Hey, Siri. <laughs> okay. Voice memos. Oh, no. Big Kev on fire with his technical operations. What Kevin is good at, though, very good at, is football. And like many of his generation, Muskie left home to pursue his career in Europe. I don't know about you guys, but I love these stories of guys and girls flying off to the other side of the world with no money, no security, no family, and pretty much no idea in search of their dreams. And Kev tells his story really, really well. From Wembley to World Cup qualifiers, being labelled a hard man, a really hard man, that penalty at the MCG, Melbourne victory and coaching in the A-League and my favourite part of the show where he talks about throwing it all in for one gutsy almighty punt which paid off last week when Kev was named the head coach of a Belgian Pro League side, St Truden, making him the only Australian head coach of a men's team in Europe. I firmly believe that the potential uh, of uh, St Truden and, and the potential of the team uh, is limitless. Uh, and let's see where it takes us. My main concern, not concern, my main responsibility is to improve 
Uh, you know, I want to strive to improve uh, in what we do every day, how we do things every day, uh, to uh, gain progress on from where we uh, finished last season. Well done to Kev, because you'll hear in this episode just how hard being recognised as an Aussie manager in European football really is, both from a qualification and respect perspective. So a huge congrats to Muskie for getting the gig. All right, enjoy the good bloke that is Kevin Vincent Muskie. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind you see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games. Over in Belgium, the man that runs a football club but he's not that technically flash, we just found out, Kevin Musket. Welcome to the Howie Games, Kev. Great to see you. Nice to see you, mate, and uh, thanks for having us. And, And by the way, that was me... At my best, there, mate. That was that was pretty good. I'm pretty pleased with myself, man. I can't believe you uh, you haven't acknowledged it. But anyway, we move on. Um, there's there's kids being playing with your phone. You've got yeah. computers there. You've got recordings. But we're all set up. We should be good now. Yeah, ready to go. Ready to go. It doesn't help uh, at the moment. Still got the the Australian number and the Australian phone. So juggling between phones and uh, and juggling life at the moment. It seems uh, also, mate. So uh, uh, making the best of uh, you know the current uh, difficult situation. <laughs> Who's that, the dog? Oh, the dog, mate. Brought the dog across, but uh, my my partner's upstairs and uh, I think she's having a shower, so she's heard a bloody noise. She's giving... What's the dog's name? Oh, Pixie. Pixie. Little little toy poodle, mate. We brought One of the toughest men to ever play the world game and you've got a poodle. Yeah, mate, because it, it, if anyone comes near her, mate, I'm so protective of her, Howie. I love her, mate. Yeah, so we brought her out from Australia with us. It bloody cost me. Right. Like, yeah. Well, it was – she cost probably the same amount as uh, myself and my partner's flights, mate. Like, it was fucking <laughs> – got to take out all sorts of shit for her, but uh, all good. <laughs> all right, uh, Kev, so much to talk about with you. You've, you've had a journey that's taken you all around the world. But firstly, I didn't realise that you were actually born in the UK. <laughs> I was, uh, and you know, who would have known? It's that, a guarded uh, family secret, that one, isn't it? <laughs> oh yes, it gets uh, thrown uh, thrown up from time to time. Uh, when you can uh, draw past the first uh, four hundred articles about what a what a monster I am when you Google me, it's uh, somewhere <laughs> somewhere hidden about four thousand and third in the on the, in Google, but. <laughs> yeah, and, and who would have known, Howie, that, uh, you know, in years to follow that uh, uh, it was, you know, such an asset to me having the uh, British passport. Yeah. Um, so uh, the old man keeps telling me uh, that, uh, you know, it was premeditated and he knew what he was doing, uh, but uh, maybe a little bit of a stroke of luck uh, with that. But yeah, So how, was, old, how old were you when you, you moved out? Uh, well, mum and dad are uh, Maltese uh, heritage and, and uh, went and lived in uh, just outside London uh, yep. after they got married and my sister was uh, born prior to me and uh, and then I was born out there and I would have been about six months old when we uh, uh, when we come out to, when we immigrated to Australia. So uh, I spent all my, obviously all my uh, life apart from the first few months uh, in Australia, in Melbourne. 
And what was your dad doing? Because it's um, it's a punt, no doubt. We well, I spoke to John Aloisi yeah. about this, and he talked about his parents making a big move, obviously yeah. from Malta to the UK to Australia. The yeah. average Maltese at that stage wouldn't know a no. great deal about Australia, I wouldn't have thought. No, and there was, uh, again, there was opportunities because uh, it was more about, you know, the the perception. And I, 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 I toil with this a little bit because, uh, you know, you speak to the old man and, you, you you know, you ask him, you know, what were you thinking? Uh, and it was always, uh, you know, they wanted to have a family and they wanted, uh, you know, he wanted to provide more opportunities for the family, for the kids uh, so then they had some family. Uh, my, my dad had a sister already uh, residing in, in England, so he went out and, and stayed with them uh, uh, for, to start, you know, those as reasons, as I said, you know, for some opportunities. And then from there, you know, recognised that uh, uh, they had an opportunity to go to uh, Canada uh, or Australia uh, to wow. uh, migrate to one or the other and uh, um, decided to migrate to uh, Australia. And, and like I said, I toured with the whole, you know, you know, when I dig, when I scratch the surface, and I go, well, what, when you mean more opportunity, it was, you know, okay, so, you know, schooling and, and jobs and work and all those sort of things. And But when you really analyse it, I go, well, you know, all I remember as a kid was, you know, the old man having, you know, two jobs and, uh, uh, you know, mum, you know, working part-time jobs and, you know, after school, you know, having another part-time job. And I, I, I toured with the whole, you know, f- more opportunities uh, because uh. was it, you know, that didn't really sound, doesn't really sound like a, a better life for them, you know, because, uh, you know, okay, you could have stayed in the comfortable, uh, but it was not the opportunities for them, it was the opportunities that it would have, uh, or, you know, would be opening up or could open up for, for us as uh, as kids. So, uh, What was your dad doing? What type of jobs was he doing when yeah, he was sort of coming and going? No, obviously, the uh, when, when he came out, the old man was uh, not skilled in terms of, not educated in in, um, uh, in certain areas. So he was more working in factories. He worked at, uh, uh, you know, Dunlop uh, uh, Olympic Tires. I remember in Footscray when I was a kid, yeah, growing up, I remember going there quite a bit. And uh, so it was always <laughs> Running around from from job to job. When he first came out, he's working on the, uh, you know, the laying of the tarmac, the roads on, uh, you know, around uh, around Victoria. So uh, he uh, he certainly laboured uh, through uh, uh, my early years. Anyway, I can you know remember him as I said, you know, working tirelessly just to uh, to provide and and as he calls it, give us a <laughs> a better opportunity in life. Which is tremendously selfless, I know, and, and, yeah. and now when you get kids you sort of understand it, but it's still a very yeah. selfless thing to do. So you're, you're going through school, were you, um, were you always into sport? Were you an academic type? Yeah. What, what, like what was young Kev? Were you as tough at no, eight as you were at 28 or not? No, no, certainly no. Look, academically I'd say that I'd, I'd fancied myself if I applied myself a little bit more. Um, <laughs> if? Yeah, if I uh, if I applied myself, but yeah, I was always uh, and again, you know, uh, uh, my, my father was always um, you know watching the football and going to the football, and uh, you know, my earliest uh, recollections were you know just always you know by his side, and he'd go and watch a game here, and you know, we lived in uh, out west in Melbourne where you know there was a, a small Maltese community, and there was a, a couple of Maltese clubs. Uh, uh, and he'd always be down there, uh, you know, I'd be training and then, you know, we'd watch, you know, the, the, the other 
teams play, the older kids play, the, the reserves play, the first team play. So, you know, we spent quite a few nights and I'd always be tagging along, I'd always be with him and, and that led obviously to school as well. And, um, you know, I finished uh, 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 my school at the Australian Institute of Sports. So I finished my year 12 and uh, and, and I did, uh, you know, I did you know, like it. I didn't uh, dislike it. Uh, but my, if I'm, if I'm honest, uh, you know, just as much focus, um, or probably a little bit more was in, in into football because if we weren't at the the, the club uh, watching training or watching games, you know we were you know the old man was watching it on telly and I you know I was you know by his side watching it so I got the unbelievable drive and thirst for it you know from from dad. And were you a extremely talented junior? Were you mm. good but a hard worker? Were those in front of you like where did you sit in the pack as a sort of 14, 15, 16 year old? Um, yeah, I mean, the, my, my recollection as, uh, you know, in, in my own age group without, uh, you know, I would always, uh, you know, stood out and uh, I could sense that, that uh, within my own age group that I was, um, you know, going okay and, uh, you know, occasionally I'd, uh, you know, when I got to about 15, 14, 15, that, you know, I was being asked to play for the 18s or the seconds and so, you know, you, you could sense that... Um, you know that uh, you know I wanted to really uh, give this a crack, and um, and uh, and then from there, you know, at about seventeen, eighteen, you start getting your, you know, the, the international recognition, uh, state recognition. We had a great system back back in the day. You know, there was a competitive edge because you know to be selected for your region, it was almost you know you, you sort of knew you know which players because you'd be playing in that, uh, and then. To be selected then after the regions for the state team, that was a huge thing, you know, for me back then and for for all us. Uh, I can recall it, you know, when you got that, you know, we were sponsored by Buffalo and they had these big uh, white Buffalo bags that they'd present you with and, mate, you treasured it. It was, And then you'd go to the, uh, the Nationals and then you'd get selected for the Australian team. So there was a, a clear pathway of uh, uh, development, more games, you were playing more games. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that we, we're doing everything wrong now, but, you know, I look back then and it was just, you know, it was great, you know, as a, as a youngster growing up. I, I, I'm really happy that I grew up in that era era uh, and the way we uh, you know we're developing them now you know it just seems to be so convoluted and um, you know everybody you know pulling in in separate directions. So who was your first professional paid game of football for? Uh, 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 I, uh, it was George Cross I mean uh, it was <laughs> use the word professionally loosely early, but uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, it was Sunshine George Cross and uh, I was one of the... How old were you being? I reckon I was uh, 16 or 17. Uh, right. Uh, and I, I do remember it was it was funny because, uh, you know, these days, you know, we've got all the super agents and uh, there's, uh, you know, a handful of good ones operating and, and uh, 50 handfuls of, uh, you know, ordinary ones operating <laughs> in, uh, in in Australia. Uh, but uh, I, I didn't have an agent. My old man was the agent. And uh, and I remember till now that like, uh, uh, I was playing for George Cross at the times and uh, George Cross were, you know, always, you know, uh, uh, trying to avoid relegation and it wasn't uh, the glamour club and I remember it was uh, my first contract the old man goes look I've, you know I've, uh, you know, I know the guys there and I drink with them so I've got you a really good deal uh, and it was I remember it was the, the deal was $300 a win 200 a draw and 100 for a loss 
Uh, and after a while, I go, shit, that, that's, that's amazing. You know, the $300, I mean, I'm going to school and, you know, uh, I remember buying, you know, things at the tuck shop for less than a dollar back then, you know what I mean? So 300 <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, but after about, uh, I think I played, you know, eight or nine games that season and uh, realised that the 300 was a bit of a hoax, mate, because you didn't, you didn't win very many games at George Cross, mate. <laughs> So it, uh, I, said, I said, you know, on the next contract, we might have to rethink this, Dad. Uh, uh, but, uh, so, so you, uh, mate, you got the opportunity doing a bit of reading to yeah. trial in the UK yeah. as a young bloke. So you get on a plane, like how old are you and what's, like, what's yeah. involved? You get off the plane from Australia, what's involved in a trial? Because to me, it sounds yeah. like tremendous pressure basically. Uh, it, it is, but, you know, at that age you you you're fearless and you, you don't really, you, know, you don't feel stress and pressure because, you know, as as youngsters, you know, what I've learnt, you know, over, you know, through, with my experience is that, you know, with a youngster, I'm not, I wasn't a kid at that stage, but you, you focus more on, uh, the mind uh, somehow focus more on the things you're good at. And that changes, when we get into adult years, the, it, it changes 180 degrees where everyone focuses on what you're not good at. Uh, and and society does that because you know everybody. Uh, it's easy to identify a problem, uh, then easy then then find a solution. So you know everyone goes, oh mate, how are you you could be better at this rather than say, mate, how good are you at this? It's just the how yeah, the okay. So as a young bloke, I don't remember feeling the stress and pressure. I just thought to myself, oh mate, I'm, you know I've been given this opportunity and, you know, I must be doing all right. So you're always uh, – and, you know, that wasn't successful. Uh, it was – the hardest thing was, and, you know, when you get there and you're a young bloke, they, they can't just stick you in a hotel because, uh, obviously, you uh, – so I was uh, – uh, I was with a family, you know, as we, as we did at the junior level. You'd stay with a family. So I remember, you know, uh, you know, living with his family and – you know, that was the hardest thing because you know you, you're so used to mum and uh, you know the, the the food that you've uh, used to and all and all of a sudden and and that that was that was a great experience looking back on it now it was a great experience and I went to Bolton on trial and I'm pretty sure I went to uh, there would have been another club I reckon uh, you know West Brom maybe as well uh, so uh, and then obviously that was more at the time you know the way it was you know the old man said to me you know I just want you to go across there and um, it, it was his little way of you know dangling the carrot for me because there was no uh, mate he's going to stay there or mate he's going to get a contract it was more about dangling the carrot give me an opportunity to uh, do you know do that travel and train with the uh, you know professional outfits at um, at that given time so uh, and it worked because uh, you know I couldn't wait to get back out there and, and, and have another crack and it would have been about 95-ish where I went to uh, Sheffield United come out to Australia uh, mm-hmm. and played some end of season games uh, we played against them with our Olympic team and I'd done well and uh, the guy, the agent or the promoter that brought them to Australia had a, con- had a relationship with the manager the manager then invited me out to uh, on trial uh, where now it's a proper trial. It's not an experience thing. I, wa- I want to stay there, mate. And uh, I've done really well. Anyway, we get to the point where uh, Dave Bassett, uh, he says, well, yeah, we're going to offer you a contract. Uh, you know, I'm getting the paperwork done. You've done really well. Uh, so I'm just sitting there, you know, uh, um, and waiting for this contract. And then, you know, two or three days later, he, he calls me in the office and said, look, we've got a bit of an issue. He goes... You know, I've got this contract here for you to sign. He goes, I'm happy for you to sign it today. He said, but the the, the reality is I'm getting the sack tomorrow. So, 
Anyway, so I missed that opportunity, went back, um, went to the Olympics. Dave Bassett gets another job at Crystal Palace. During that season, he says to me, um, you know, as soon as I get an opportunity, uh, I'm bringing you in. So you yeah. get picked up. To Crystal Palace. Yeah. In, what's this, 96, yeah. 90, 96, 90, so, 96, 97 season, yeah. So they're in the championship. They've just missed out on promotion. Yeah. yeah. And that season turns into, yeah. well, a fairy tale, I guess, because they yeah. get promoted to the Premier League. So what's yeah. it like coming down the stretch, playing in front of those amazing mm. English crowds when you're trying yeah. to get... Yeah, elevate it, promote it. Yeah, I mean, there was so many, uh, and as I said, I'm I'm probably not one uh, who's going to knock the lights out in ratings and podcasts because my memory's shocking. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're going well. My my memory's shocking, mate. But uh, I do remember that first year. I do remember the first year because I went across and I was on my own. uh, And and what was that like? Well, I Getting arrived, off the plane and thinking, right, yeah. I'm a professional footballer. I've got to get it done here. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's surreal because I do remember things, certain things. I remember that, you know, someone from the club with a sign, Crystal Palace is waiting for me at the airport. Mate, you logged, uh, you know, take you away in a car, they take you to a nice hotel that I was in at, at a Hilton Hotel in, in Croydon. And it was, I was thinking, mate, I've, I'm the man here. I've arrived, you know. It's <laughs> fucking, uh, how, how good is this? <laughs> Uh, Here's Ronaldo. T- yeah, taking into consideration, I've just been to the Olympics and uh, we'd uh, got knocked out in the in the in the group stage, and the rest of the boys went to the uh, the uh, the village, and I went to Australia to pick up some stuff because you know the the season's going to start. You know, the, the Olympics were June, July, and the season starts in August. So I quickly go home, you know, pack some stuff, get back to uh, or go to England, uh, and I arrive on the Monday. The first game's on the Saturday. And I'm thinking, shit, you know, I've got, to, I've got to get myself into this team as quickly as possible. You know, now all the professional juices start to flow. And uh, and on the, you know, the Friday or something, we're doing the tactical session and he's got me playing at left wing back. And I'm thinking, so, oh, the fuck? You know, I've never really played at this. Anyway, I thought, mate, I'm just going to take the opportunity. And it couldn't have got off to a worse start for me, Howie. We were away to Birmingham. I remember this. We were away to Birmingham. Uh, and in the first half, I get the ball. Uh, don't really see any options going forward, so I play a square pass and, you know, uh, gets cut out, they score, we're losing 1-0. <laughs> and, uh, oh, no. yeah, we come in at half-time and I think, shit, you know, look, I've just known these blokes five or six days and they're thinking, Who, you know, who's this Aussie? He's, he's going <laughs> to... So, and I, I remember this vividly because it, it held me in good stead for the, my period of time. It was defining as well because at half-time, you know, we're waiting for the manager, manager to come in and, uh, you know, I've just put my hand up and said, like, sorry, boys, mate, I, uh, you know, that pass, sorry, sorry, you know, cost us a goal. Uh, and I can remember, like, no one was really looking at me when I said it, but then when I actually said sorry, you know, by the end of it, you know, they all stopped what they were doing and tied a lace and looked up at me and I thought to myself, well, oh, I reckon I've said something wrong here because I just gauged that feeling. Anyway, the manager comes in. Second half, we go back out. Uh, I go down, a, uh, go down a, uh, the wing, cross the ball. We score. We draw. We drew one one. So I've, I've redeemed myself slightly. And then on the coach on the way home, and back then it was you know everyone's having, everyone's drinking beers because you know that was the era you know in the coach and everyone's drinking beers. And nice. I remember. Yeah, I remember sitting next to one of the English boys and I was going, mate, what happened at half-time, you know? I, I, I just felt a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, and this was a lesson, a huge lesson, and, and character-defining for me as well because uh, – and I said, why was everyone – what was the reaction so uh, – and they go, mate, you never take any responsibility here, mate. You always blame somebody else. 
And I go, oh, shit. I said, uh, that's, that's why everyone was so stunned, you know? And I thought, right. well, yeah, because, mate, it's so cut. Then it, what it taught me was how cutthroat it is that, mate, no one will take ownership. No one will take responsibility. And back then, I mean, it was a long time ago, uh, you know, no one will take ownership or responsibility that, you know, uh, it was, you know, it got to the point in that season where uh, the boys used to say to me, mate, Ray Houghton, uh, obviously, he, he, was, he was that good that, that, you know, he'd make a mistake out in the pitch and he'd blame someone in the stand for his... Uh, for his uh, that's, that's, that's how... That's, that's how the... Uh, that's, but I decided at that point, I go, well, do you know what? You know, I've come into your country. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll adapt to your culture, but that's not one, uh, that's not one that I'm going to take on board, mate. I, I don't agree yeah. with it. And, uh, but I was, as you can imagine, I was a little bit... Uh, protected when, you know, come the other way, mate, when others were making a mistake and they, you know, they try to shift the blame to me. I, I didn't stick for that too, too kindly either. Yeah. So, but, yeah. so you see the shots and the crowds and the celebrations yeah. and what it means to mm. football supporters when their team gets um, yeah. moved up to the next division and when you're going yeah. from the championship to the big dance, like what are your memories mm. of the match and the yeah. celebration and the, the cr- people and the crowd around you? Uh, the, the, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things because we get to play now at Wembley, you know, the playoff, and it's, it's still the most, uh, the richest uh, one-off game in the world because uh, if you win promotion, you get the, the premiership dollars, but you get it for three years minimum because you get parachute payments if you get relegated, all that sort of stuff. So, and then the other thing was, it's, you know, sitting on the couch with the old man watching, uh, I mean, when I was real young, the only games that were on telly were the FA Cup finals. Uh, so, you know, it'll be at Wembley and, you know, you'd remember my <laughs> vivid memories of the two managers walking out uh, across the, uh, I don't know, the, the, the running track, if you like. It's not the running yeah. track. You can picture it around the Wembley and I can remember all that. And, uh, and then, you know, I had the, you know, I'm playing here. So it brought back flashes of memories from the old man, sitting with the old man, you know, watching the FA Cup final at the old Wembley. Uh, so I had the opportunity to uh, to play on it. Uh, and at that point in time, you know, if there's anything, I, I, I wasn't earning a, a great deal of money. I wasn't, uh, and the old man, as I said, he's, you know, you know, going from job to job and working hard. So, you know, the fact that, you know, I couldn't get him across there uh, to watch the game still, you know, it's probably one thing that uh, got away from me. Uh, but we, we ended up going on to win it 1-0. Uh, and it was, I remember it was a baking hot day. Well, the players have left the relative tranquility of the tunnel for a storming atmosphere inside the stadium. Balloons have been let off into the sunny sky. Uh, and... Uh, uh, we it was nil nil, uh, and it was against Sheffield United. And if you recall, you know earlier I was um, at Sheffield on trial, and I was staying with this family who were Sheffield United fans. And till this day, I'm still good mates with uh, Steve, the, the the old man, the dad. So you know, I come back, you know, I go away from Sheffield. I don't get in this trial. I don't make. Uh, I don't sign for Sheffield. We we stayed in touch. I signed for Palace. He's happy for me. And then we go and beat him in the player final. So. <laughs> I remember as well, I got him uh, lounge tickets, uh, players' lounge tickets, and uh, it was one of those. And, and at the time, I was just a, you know, a, a 22-year-old, and I was just so happy with life. I was, you know, can't wait to get in the lounge and have a beer and that. 
Uh, and it was only like recent years that he said to me, he goes, that was the hardest, uh, uh, you know, five minutes of my life. He goes, waiting for you to come in. He goes, because I was so happy for you, but at the same time I, I wanted to kill someone and, 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 you, and you were very high up on the list, he said. He goes, so, uh, yeah, we won 1-0 in the 92nd minute. Uh, it was uh, an unbelievable goal. Uh, David Hopkins, uh, we had a corner, uh, gets knocked out and he puts it in the top corner. One of the best goals uh, scored in uh, playoff history. The Palace fans are to a left, over the seats, can they win it? And the corner taken and Simon Roger floats it in and it's cleared by Tyler again. David Hopkins, look at a curl! So, yeah, then it was, uh, you know, a party or a big party for a day or two. And then uh, I remember getting on the big bird, coming back to, to, um, to Melbourne to, uh, you know, give the, the medal to my dad. You gave it to your dad, did you? Yeah, give it to him. He, 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 he had a, like a little bit of a shrine area on his bar where he uh, saved anything that uh, you know remotely had to do with anything football. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a good moment. Mate, talking about the FA Cup final, um, yeah. you played a lot of games for Wolves, and then you, yeah. you went to Millwall, um, and you played. Was it? Sunderland, you beat them yeah. in the semi-final, but you hurt yeah. your knee. It's just sold a bit short there by McCartney. Highfield goes alone, blocked by Paul Cahill. He's on the spot. That's his game. And Tim Cahill puts Millwall in front of Old Trafford in the FA Cup semi-final. So you, yeah. you've taken your club. You're captain, aren't you? Yeah, uh, Dennis Wise took over um, and he made me captain. It was one of the first things he did. He made me captain. He was captain prior to that. He made me captain and I played in every so round. You take, and, so, and so you take Millwall to the FA Cup final, yeah. but you get injured in the semi final. Yeah. Um, Sliding doors moments because, you know, everyone – I played in every round uh, of the cup final. That year and, and it's – you know, we had a good draw, don't get me wrong. We, we, you know, we had a, we had a, we had a favourable draw throughout. Uh, and in that semi-final, we played at Old Trafford and it was against Sunderland and um, we, we won nil up and, you know, things are going great. And, uh, yeah, it was an awkward situation where, you know, he landed, uh, you know – my, my leg hyperextended with the weight of a, another player. Um, and, you know, these things happen. Uh, you're out there and uh, and then I missed, yeah, I, I fractured the top of my tibia uh, and ruptured my medial ligament all in the, the one uh, moment. Uh, and I remember I just kept thinking to myself, oh, this can't be right and, you know, trying to be optimistic and the physio comes out and he goes, mate, you, you're done. He goes, and he's signalling, you know, that uh, as they did back then, take him off, take him off. Uh, and I go, mate, I'm okay because the pain was excruciating initially, but then there was no pain. And I thought, mate, I'm okay. What are you talking about? 
So he's telling me, no, no, and I, so I stood up and I go, mate, I'm okay. And I started walking. I'm going, look, I'm okay, mate. It's, there's no pain. And as I turned, uh, uh, from my knee down, uh, the rest of my body turned, but from my knee down, the leg kept going forward because obviously there was no oh. ligaments. Uh, uh, the, the ligaments was uh, ruptured. So he said, uh, the physio was brilliant and uh, he's, oh, I got to know him really well from that. So he goes, do you believe me now? You know, he, he, told, he used a few different language, but... Uh, uh, some different language, but he said, do you believe me now? I said, yeah, I'm done, mate. And that was it, mate. And, uh, yeah, I missed six months, so I missed the uh, the final. Uh, and it was, again... Was it, like, was it like sitting in the stands watching uh, an was, FA Cup? Like, you've uh, described your dad and watching yeah. it. and like, What was it like? Ma, yeah, mum, uh, mum come over. You know, dad didn't, uh, you know, being... Because you know, he, he, I wasn't playing, he didn't want to be there and... Uh, uh, so mum come over, which was which was nice, and you know, because I was struggling, and uh, you know, originally I was a bit like the old man. I could see why he didn't want to be because I didn't want to be there either. And I said to Wisey, uh, Dennis Wisey, look, mate, I, I'm going to go home. I, I'm going to you know start my rehab there. And, uh, and he goes, you know, uh, typical Wisey. He goes, mate, you're going nowhere. He goes, mate, I need you. And all of a sudden, from wanting to go home and feeling like to, you know feeling shit mm. basically, and, and not. You know, all of a sudden I come out of the conversation in, in typical Dennis Wise fashion. You know, I, I felt fucking bulletproof again. I felt, well, this guy, need, you know, it was just what he said to me. I need you here, mate. I, I need you. Mate, I want you to come all the games with me. I need it. So he included me, which, you know, I don't know. How, you know, he wasn't taking too much notice of what I said, no doubt, but he just made me feel important. And then he goes, mate, you're, you're leading the team out. He goes, you're going to walk the team out at Wembley. Uh, at, uh, it was at Cardiff because Wembley was being demolished and then moved. Oh, okay. So it was in Cardiff. He goes, mate, you're coming to the team. We spent four days in Cardiff. Uh, and uh, he goes, you're going to lead the team out. And I said, oh, mate. And, you know, I just couldn't believe the gesture because, as I said to you, how you know, it's tradition and it's history that the managers walk the two teams out and lead the teams out. So he said to me, mate, you're going to lead the team out. He goes, because I'm playing. He goes, so it was a funny story because, mate, you can imagine four days in Cardiff and the only thing he said to, there was four or five of us injured or suspended, and he said, mate, you just got to be here for dinner and be in a respectable state and then, you know, you can get on with it. So, mate, none of us are playing. So you could imagine by day four, mate, it was, uh, you know, we were... (laughs) Out in the sun in Cardiff, uh, limited sun there was, and on the drink, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, trying to drown our sorrows, if you like. And I remember being in the tunnel at Cardiff, and uh, I could, you know, I'm sit- I've got my crutches and I'm ready to lead this team out, and I could hear commotion, and you know, why is he arguing with someone? And basically, what had happened? The FA have gone. Why is he? You have to lead the team out, mate. It's you know, the, in the history of the uh, uh, FA Cup, the managers lead the team out, mate. You, you, we're not allowing you to break history. Uh, it's you know, it's mandatory. It's compulsory. Yeah. So you know, why is he fashion? He goes, well, okay, no problem. So he comes up to me and he goes, look, mate. He goes, you, you can't lead the team out because this FA delegate was there. He goes, mate, it's history. You know, we've got to stick by the books and blah blah. And Sir Alex Ferguson, mind you, is just because uh, we're playing Man United. Hello everyone, and with the Millennium Stadium standing by then to erupt to the nerve-tingling sounds of a full-throated roar, I wonder, I wonder how many of the multi-millions of viewers tuning in around the world, 158 countries in all, how many could possibly have envisaged when this season's competition got underway that unfashionable Millwall will be here in these sumptuous surroundings 
preparing to take on the might of Manchester United. So Alex Ferguson's uh, stood across there and he's thinking, what the hell is going on with this team? He goes... So anyway, we take a step and I start to try and move away and like Wiser just grabs me and I'm thinking, so the bloke doubles back and the team start to walk out uh, and Wiser just nudges me in front of him and, and, and goes back into the line where he was. So I end up actually leading the team out on my crutches. <laughs> uh, and the, the frightening thing is, right, uh, if you look back at the footage now, mate, I reckon Sir Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson was fuming because... <laughs> Mate, I'm on my crutches, as you can imagine. It's a decent walk. It's a decent walk in the middle of the pitch. And, mate, he did not look back and wait well, for one moment, mate. He was off. Uh, and then after that, yeah. So, you know, I've, I've a lot of respect for Dennis Wise as a, as a, as a person, mate. He's a, a real, real um, nice man and, and certainly misjudged. And, yeah, watching the game, I remember it was bacon hot. Uh, you know, got a belly full of beer, mate, from the night before. And, you know, we, we, you know, we're not getting anywhere near him. And it was, you know, we're sitting in the sun and, yeah, pretty, feeling pretty ordinary at that point. As soon as kickoff comes, just feeling pretty ordinary about not being out there. But that's life. The Giants have been too strong for the Lions. Manchester United, FA Cup winners for the 11th time. Back to Muskie in a moment. Next up on the Howie Games, an athlete who was recognised in her time as the world's best in her sport, basketball, Lauren Jackson. Lauren had a phenomenal, I mean phenomenal career, but it wasn't always an easy ride. Those experiences have forged in LJ an incredible, incredible resilience. You know, when I was young, um, I think... I, I, for whatever reason, I had really bad separation anxiety. So, like, on junior teams, under 12s, under 14s, if my mum wasn't with me I'd or my dad, I'd really, I wouldn't be able to perform. So um, there'd be times when I'd been picked on a Riverina team or we were going to state championships or whatever and mum and dad couldn't get off work, so we were being billeted out. And, I mean, I couldn't breathe. I could not, I actually, I being in somebody else's house and and doing it that way, I could not function normally. And like, it's hard to sort of look back on it, but um, yeah, you just, you don't talk about those sort of things. Well, you didn't back in those days. And I just did not want anyone to think that I was, you're going through anything other than just toughness. That's Lauren Jackson next Thursday on the Howie game. Let's get back to Muskie. You, you mentioned at the start, and I want to talk about the Socceroos in a moment with you, but you mentioned at the start, if you Google your name, um, what comes up? You said 4,000 pages. Yeah. So, you know, you had an amazing career, 549 professional games, 57 goals. Where do you sit with it now looking yeah. back on this bloke perceived as one of the hardest men to ever play the game? Mm. Um, yeah. you know, some votes, mate, the most hated bloke to ever play the game. Like, yeah. where, where do you sit back on it now? You're a bit older and a bit wiser. Uh, there's, there's quite a bit to touch on there, uh, Harry. I mean, you know, the, the vote, I mean, that's a classic one because uh, voted the, the most hated man. Uh, there was actually no vote. So, right. if, like, so this, this right. one, yeah, there was the context that that was taken from was a player that uh, played with Stan Lazaridis, uh, a guy called Martin Granger, who uh, fancied himself a little bit as well. I fancied myself a little bit from, you know, in that stage. And, mate, we had running battles, and then, uh, you know, one afternoon I got the better of him. 
uh, and he made a quote after the game, you know, he's, uh, he's probably the most hated bloke in the, you know, probably gets voted. The, so from there it was, you know, the, apparently there was this uh, uh, 10,000 people uh, vote that, uh, that I, there was no vote, mate. Like, so this is, uh, I can, I'm comfortable with it for one, that a lot of stuff in there is inaccurate. Uh, yes, but it's a good. Uh, it's uh, it makes good reading and puts a smile piece. And then the second thing is that um, I never, you know, had the um, intentions of going out to play professional sport to make friends. No, you know, uh, I, you know, I had the intention of, you know, uh, all my teammates, you know, uh, you know, there's. There's, there was no uh, uh, votes taken from my teammates, my ex-teammates or my ex-clubs because I dare say that those uh, the outcomes would be very, very different. Of course uh, they would. Yeah, so... I, well, well, look, I, don't, yeah. I'll, I will interrupt you for a moment. Um, yeah. I can see it from the opposition point of view and we'll get to your style of play, but yeah. like, it's like... Um, Who's a, an AFL equivalent, a rugby league equivalent? Like a, a Stevie Baker for St Kilda. Yeah. The 17 clubs hate him. But the St Kilda fans will forever love him, and I presume yeah. that's exactly the same because you're the yeah. type of bloke that supporters want on their team. But that's not the type of bloke that supporters want to play against. Well, I mean, look, I'm, I'm probably not uh, because of the way uh, things were, and, and times were different. The era was different. The style, the football was very different, and. Uh, I probably you know, was easy to dislike if you're uh, uh, an, an opponent or an opposition fan. It was the challenge with Musket and Adam Hughes and in it was the, the failing arm of Kevin Musket, the left arm, flick back, caught Hughes in the head and Kevin Musket is off. The Melbourne victory captain gets a red card and things go from bad to worse for the home side. Well, he walks a fine line, Kevin Musket. This time, he stepped over it. Why? Well, I mean, the way, you know, I, I pushed the envelope as far as I, uh, as far as I could and then somehow find some more energy just to give it another nudge, if, if that yeah. makes sense. So, I'd, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'd, uh, I'd uh, and, and all in the uh, intention of, uh, you know, winning. Yeah, throughout my career, you know, looking back now, and it's dangerous to look back because you, you're mm-hmm. looking back with uh, uh, modern day, a modern day set of eyes, but on you know with something that was so different, and it's dangerous to look back. You know, did I you know take winning uh, too far, and 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 too, you know possibly there were occasions. Do I regret Howie some you know things that happened throughout my career? Uh, you know, I, I, I believe you should never regret. So I don't know if I but do I wish. Maybe one or two incidents didn't happen. Of course, I do. You know, in you know, with in the hindsight of you know uh, greater knowledge and experience, you know, of course, I you know uh, I, I maybe uh, wish that one or two incidents didn't happen. But you know what they did, and I, you know, I got to own them. And uh, you know, I never ran away from you know any of those incidents at the time. Uh, so I'm certainly not going to do it now. Do I wish one or two didn't happen? Of course, I did. You know. Uh, so uh, what's it like? But, what's it like when you're cast as the villain, whether it's playing yeah. for victory or wolves, and you're on yeah. the back page, and it's musket's yeah. done this? Like, what's life? as the villain like? Yeah, it didn't, it, it didn't bother me. Uh, and the media, I mean, you, you know more than, uh, yes. more than most that, that, you know, 
that things, those type of things, are, you know, get runs, get get uh, greater runs, and uh, you know, people want to talk they to do. you more. But but ultimately, you know, none of that crossed my mind. All that crossed my mind is, mate, I've got ten other blokes and uh, and four, five, six in the bench, and uh, you know, a squad of twenty, and uh, you know, Melbourne Victory's case, for example, you know, a uh, uh, membership base of twenty six thousand, and and all they bloody cared about was, you know, winning for them. Uh, and, you know, I didn't really care too much because, you know, if I really cared about myself, you know, uh, I possibly would have, you know, stood still and looked back and I go, well, mate, this is probably not, you know, the best thing for my, uh, you know, self personally in the way I'm going to get portrayed and the way I'm going to be looked at. But I didn't stop and, and think about myself. All I cared about was, uh, you know, that winning the game or winning a trophy was uh, was the the thing that mattered most to me. So, uh, you know, along the way, uh, it didn't bother me, the whole villain thing. And uh, if anything, uh, it just was water off a duck's back. 46 matches for the Socceroos. Yeah. And at the MCG against Uruguay. And I was yeah. a young bloke in the crowd behind the goals when you step oh, up to take a penalty. Yeah. Um, there with a few mates having a few beers. It's the, it's the qualifying versus Uruguay, first yeah. leg at the MCG. Like, is that as good as it gets as a professional yeah. athlete in front of your home crowd playing for your country? Yeah, I, I think if, if, you know, if, if you get asked, you know, one moment, if you like, throughout mm. your career, I, I think that epitomised a, a lot of things for me because... Uh, it had nothing to do with a tackle. It had nothing to do with uh, you know me upsetting someone. It was a, a, a just a moment in time where you know I was back home in Melbourne. Since the 1956 Olympic Games, Melbourne's MCG has hosted some wonderful sporting moments and some very special achievements. And tonight, another chapter is going to be added to the MCG. We have a full house. Over 90,000 fans have packed in here to the G to see the first of two legs of the World Cup qualifying. Is it going to be Uruguay or is it going to be the Australian Socceroos? You know, I'm, I'm living overseas at the moment and, uh, you know, the old man missed the, uh, the first game at Wembley. You know, I missed the second one, so therefore we didn't come. So then, you know, to be playing at the MCG that, uh, you know, is, you know, growing up in Melbourne, whether you liked it or not, is, you know, is the, is the mecca, mate. It's, uh, you know, the stadium uh, of all stadiums. Uh, and an opportunity to play a qualifier that uh, we'd never won a qualifier, uh, you know, before uh, uh, at that stage. And uh, and anybody, you know, I remember getting so many tickets because, you know, anybody that had an influence or affected my career in any way, shape or form was there that night. So it wasn't, you know, watching on telly. It was, you know, everybody was there that night. Uh, and so your dad was there? Yeah, dad was there and anyone, you know, anyone that, you know, junior coaches and, uh, you know, people <laughs> that I'd come across. And you can imagine anyone that uh, had an influence on my career had an opportunity and they were there that night. So it was a, a moment to say that uh, that I could share with everyone, if you like, uh, uh, um, albeit, you know, from, from a distance. But, uh, and we ended up winning 1-0. So, uh, and I think, to, uh, I'm pretty sure, like, it's uh, still the only time we've won a qualifier 
uh, apart from, you know, drawing a few. So, yeah, it was a, a big occasion because, you know, yeah, you know, playing at the old Wembley, uh, winning promotion, you know, cup finals and league titles in Scotland, you know, many league titles with victory. But, you know, the, the epitome is to represent your country. You know, whenever it's a – whether it's a team sport or an individual sport, you, you know, the, the everyone will – well, I certainly say uh, the, the country that gave me so much to get an opportunity to represent uh, a country on such a stage and then have everyone together in my home state and score a goal – uh, yeah, it's difficult to come, uh, you know, to think of another moment that uh, that matches it. So just take me back there. I know your memory's not that good, but um, <laughs> and you've told me that a couple of times, but it's against Uruguay. It's the first leg. There's a penalty. Yeah. Quite outstanding hitter. And Kuehl is doing some stuff here. Oh, that's a penalty! Australia have a penalty. Agostino went down. And with 12 on the clock, there is a crack. Do you just put your hand up and say it's mine or is that yeah. always going to be the plan because you're a good penalty mm. taker and, and what's it like that moment? Yeah, I, I, I think the details are really bit, some details are sketchy and some that are real uh, clear. Um, I, I don't Because there were some players out there at that point in time. I think Paul Oakham was in the pitch. Uh, uh, Mark Viduka was in the pitch. Uh, uh, Craig Moore, a little bit younger than me, he went on to take penalties after. But there was quite a few people on the pitch that... Um, you know, you'd think would, uh, you know, fancy himself to take a penalty. But I don't know. I just, I may, if I'd taken a few. And I remember the night before I was with Zelko Kalats and uh, at the end of training, it was at the MCG, uh, and, you know, we, we'd always take five penalties uh, and would have a little wager on it, uh, uh, whatever it be for that night, whether it be coffees or uh, whatever it be. Uh, and, you know, it was just, I remember just role-playing and saying, oh, big fella, if I get one tomorrow, this is what I'm going to do. And obviously <laughs> uh, I run up uh, and I go straight down the guts and he dived to, uh, uh, out the way, he dived to a side. And uh, the reality was, when the penalty, um, uh, when the whistle was blown and uh, it was Agostino, I'm pretty sure, who was brought down, the whistle blew and I, I knew immediately that, mate, he couldn't have blown, blown here for anything else bar a penalty. Now the question remains, who's the man for the job? Kevin Musket has taken them in the past and he's scored them. Because, uh, so whilst, you know, the world stood still, you know, I can feel myself, you know, like increasing the speed to get to the ball because, you know, I wanted to show everybody else, mate, I'm, I'm confident here because the flashbacks to the day before with Spider diving out the way and I go down the middle, I've got, mate, I've, I've got this down pat, I know what I'm going to do. Uh, and no one, no one really challenged me and I've not spoken to anyone about it, you know, whether they, you know, whether they wanted to take it or whether they seen that I looked confident and let me take it. I don't know what it was because I, I don't recall being the designated penalty taker. Um, so yeah, and then and the rest is history. And uh, I've done exactly the same as the the, the day before with Spider, um, albeit he wasn't in goals this time. Well, Kevin Musket, a Melbourne boy, focused, concentrating, scoring. Uh, yeah, and I've watched the footage back, and you know, jumping the the hoarding. Uh, yeah. At 
Uh, were you behind that goal, Harry, or the other one? Yeah, I was behind the goal you scored, yeah, oh, absolutely. It's, it's jumped funny, the, I jumped uh, the hoarding, ran towards the crowd. Yeah, it's brilliant because I jumped the hoarding and I think I'm celebrating and I'm thinking, bloody, where is everyone? You know, you feel like, mate, you're on your own for you know, a long time. Because I jumped the hoarding, you know, all the photographers are now uh, uh, with the um, back to play to the field. So uh, I don't know if there's any footage, but Craig Moore decides now he's going to chase and follow me and, as he jumps the hoarding, a photographer's stuck his head up, so he's knocked the photographer out on his way across. And he's my, you know, he's my one of the best mates. And uh, and there's a there's a, a picture. I've got a photo, and the, there's footage of you know he was there, one of the first, and even like one of the last to leave. And we had a little bit of an embrace. So you know, just everything uh, about that that moment there was uh, surreal and sticks with me. Do you remember seeing your dad afterwards? Oh, I can't remember the actual the actual evening. We we would have uh, you know obviously there's at that point in time the media and uh, mm-hmm. and we were preparing obviously to head out to uh, uh, to Uruguay. But yeah, we w- we would have definitely caught up. It would have been a uh, I don't remember it vividly. Uh, I remember we were staying at Crown Casino. I remember that, um, which was uh, in hindsight uh, a little bit dangerous, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I remember we couldn't sleep, Maury and I, and we were just buzzing and thought, come, we'll just go for a walk and because uh, you can stay in the complex, you don't need to go. And I remember walking, you know, you walk around the back where the restaurants are and then you, you, hit yep. the food, you hit the food court. I just remember we were walking and just talking and not paying any attention. All of a sudden we get to the food court uh, and the whole food court, you know, starts applauding. Huh. Like it was, again, it was, you know, again, Craig Moore's there, one of the best mates, and, you know, and we were like, you know, almost embarrassed, you know, like younger guys, what's going on? And so, you know, just, you know, politely thanking them. But they obviously seen the result and the whole food court was, you know, uh, you know, clapping its hands in, in appreciation and uh, uh, it's just those moments. And uh, the bubble burst pretty soon. Don't worry, Howie, mate. We were on cloud nine, but the bubble burst very quickly seven days later in, uh, in Montevideo. Well, tell me about that. You get done 3 nil, yeah. and... The stories, the pictures were coming back of, yeah. you know, uh, riots at the airport and people spitting on you. I don't, yeah. I don't know if that happened and yeah. bands outside the hotel. Was all that happening? It did. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, we were, we was, I mean, at the time you, you look back and we were very prepared, you know, we went, we stayed in Argentina to stay away from the world. But, you know, we realised, you know, that what we were up against, the, the nation, you know, when we got to the airport, you know, they made us in customs, you know, clean the boots, you know, for two, three hours, you know, like it was just like, it, like you just, you know, when you you're, you're, you think to yourself, mate, we're up against it here, but, you know, the authorities will just do their job, mate, they'll be neutral because they're, you know, officials. Oh, yeah. oh mate, it yep. was customs. So then it'd get to the point where you'd think you're done and you go, no, you've got to clean these boots, but they were brand new. Like these young... <laughs> And I go, mate, they're brand new, mate. Like, he goes, no, no, translator, you've got to go and clean them. In the end, we go, mate, you can have them. Like, you, you can have them. No, no, I don't want them. You've got to go clean them. So it was just, in the end, like, we were, you know, the first hour was funny. But, you know, after a few hours, you're thinking, oh, this is taking its toll. And, uh, you know, maybe, you know, not knowing or never been in that situation before, you know, having, you know, uh, you know national delegates and, uh, and people from, you know, uh, from the country that could have, you know, been there for us to, to sort this out. But then getting onto the bus was something I've never seen before because we get Describe there. Describe it to me. What, what was it yeah, like? Uh, now, so we're out of customs, but then we get out of customs and, you know, you're out and you've got to wait for the next four to come out. Then you wait for the next. So you wait and we get there and then all 
all of a sudden it was like, oh, look, it's very dangerous, you know, to get to the bus. And we'll go, bring the bus, bring the bus closer, mate. Like, you know, how hard is it? Like, yeah, but it's all, everything was, they, they were all in on it. You know, the custom blokes, the, the police, mate, they were all in on it. It must have been the biggest laugh of their lives. So then it was, oh, mate, you, you can't. I said, well, then shall we get out? And we go, well, can't, there's got to be a police escort of them. Mate, there was two coppers or, you know, three coppers or four coppers and there wasn't that many people. Everyone says there was hundreds of people there. There wasn't that many people. It was all orchestrated. And then, you know, as soon as you, you did come out and uh, I can remember I thought to myself, oh, I just want to get on the bus, mate. So I, I went in the first group, you know, we were going in groups of four and, you know, you ought to make a run for it and it's all these... <laughs> And I was thinking, mate, it's not that many people, because I reckon, I, I remember sitting there going, mate, if the 25 of us, you know, some staff actually, I reckon we could take on this group, you know what I mean, of people who <laughs> were but, but, Take them uh, on. Yeah, but the reality was, mate, everyone, you don't know what to expect. So I was in one of the first groups, and then I'm sitting on the bus just, like, laughing at the boys coming out, mate, getting abused <laughs> and getting spat on uh, on the on the way out. And, uh, yeah, and it was just a time-consuming thing. And then, yeah, the noise in the, the hotel. And then, mate, the, the one thing I do remember, it was, you know, the bus the bus on the way to the stadium, you know, I can't remember how long the trip was, call it 20 minutes, it was 20 minutes of, mate, people on the sides of the street, you know, uh, cursing and throwing things and uh, it just dawned on me, go, mate, there's so much it means to these people. Like, yeah. it's just, it, you, one side of you go, mate, they, they, they conducted themselves like savages and then the other side you go, mate, how passionate are these guys? You know, like it's just, and then the game itself, it was uh, this, uh, the stadium in Montevideo where obviously it's got a lot of history. I just remember going out there and the pitch was terrible uh, and, uh, you know, they had some real good players and we conceded just before half time. Um, and, you know, in, you know, when you're sitting there and having a beer, you know, with your ex-teammates, you go, mate, you keep thinking to yourself, and I reckon we say it every time we have, uh, you know, probably one or two glasses of red wine more than we should. You go, mate, if we would have just got to half time, you know, we keep <laughs> mate, it. I reckon it comes up every time, mate, if we would have just got to half time at nil-nil. Uh, but it wasn't to be. La tiene el 20, va el Gino. La mantiene Rico. That's the end of Kevin Musket Part A. Don't worry, though, plenty still to come. Tune in for Part B Legends. See you there. Listener.